With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. So far, India has reported relatively few coronavirus infections. That may represent a lack of knowledge rather than success at containment. But the human costs of a serious outbreak there could be far worse than they would be anywhere else. And the traffic in Lagos is notorious. Motorcycle taxis run riot in the roads and up on the pavements. The planners for Nigeria's largest city thought they'd be improving matters by outlawing the two- and three-wheeled menaces. They were wrong. First up, though. Prior to the emergence of COVID-19, relations between America and China were by no means at their warmest. But the coronavirus pandemic has dragged the relationship to its darkest point in decades. On Tuesday, China's foreign ministry announced it would expel reporters from The New York Times, The Washington Post and The Wall Street Journal. It was the biggest expulsion of Western correspondents since the communist takeover in 1949. Chinese officials defended the move, describing the unreasonable oppression of Chinese journalists in America. Earlier this month, the Trump administration had kicked out 60 Chinese nationals who were working for the country's state media. The individuals that we identified a few weeks back were not media. They were acting here freely. They were part of Chinese propaganda outlets. We'd identified these as foreign missions under American law. Uh, These aren't apples to apples. The spat comes amid already simmering tensions over the pandemic. President Donald Trump has taken to referring to the Chinese virus. War against the Chinese virus will be invoking... While officials in China have been pushing a conspiracy theory that the American army brought the coronavirus to its shores. The COVID outbreak and the subsequent finger-pointing about who is to blame for it has picked up all of those ideological contest elements that were already in the air. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. This has now become the two governments proposing that this is a test of political systems. China is essentially saying Western democracy is in the process of showing every one of its weaknesses as it fails to deal with this virus, fails to keep the world safe, squanders the time that China's heroic sacrifices have bought for the world, and our resolve and our determined response shows the advantages of the Chinese communist system. So they are explicitly binding that ideological contest to this argument about the virus. But where does this intersect with the banning of all of the journalists? Even before the finger-pointing about the virus began, the role of the media was becoming one of the battlegrounds for this great power contest, this ideological contest. So you had American China hawks saying, why do we allow Chinese state media and propaganda operations, so many journalists, 
and so many visas to operate in the United States and to push their own propaganda when our American journalists in China don't have the same uh, numbers or the same ease of visas. So that was already a point of contention. Uh, China hawks in the American administration took some stern measures against the Chinese state media. They made them do extra reporting as if they were branches of the Chinese embassy. Uh, they stopped some of them attending Congress as reporters. They basically challenged the idea that they were really journalists at all. And we then saw the Chinese hit back by uh, picking on a headline in the Wall Street Journal, which was uh, seen by very, many Chinese as racist and insensitive. They used that basically as an excuse to expel three Wall Street Journal journalists. And then the Americans hit back by expelling 60 Chinese state media journalists. And in this very kind of sickeningly familiar Cold War dynamic, the tit, the tat, now this week, the next stage of that tit for tat, which was the Chinese announcing this really stunning reprisal of expelling probably about a dozen in the end, American citizens who work for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. That's really taken a sledgehammer to those newspapers' operations in China. And in an extra twist, uh, those reporters have been told not only to leave the country by Friday, but that they can't then move to Hong Kong and report from there, which has always been a refuge for journalists kicked out of China. And does that tell you anything in particular about China's will to, to control the narrative also in Hong Kong? It tells you something very shocking about how the Chinese government in Beijing views Hong Kong's claims of autonomy. I mean, this is China basically saying that Hong Kong's free press, which was a promise made when Hong Kong went back from British rule, doesn't include allowing Western journalists to write stuff in Hong Kong that China dislikes. That's a really serious blow against Hong Kong's autonomy. So beneath what seems like just some name-calling, some finger-pointing, there is a, a serious diplomatic row brewing here. Yes. I mean, by the end of the year, some worst-case scenarios have a very large number of people dying as a result of this virus uh, worldwide. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. And you can see the Chinese very deliberately trying to blur the origins of this and suggest that maybe it didn't start in China, maybe it started in America, maybe it was even a conspiracy involving the American army. These sort of wild conspiracy theories being peddled by, among other people, an official spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry, then having Donald Trump responding to them directly from the podium in the White House, I think is laying the groundwork for what is going to become a very ugly, racially charged ideological argument about who is to blame for those dead. But on the other hand, China is also projecting sort of leadership in this, having come out, you know, for the moment, the other side of the epidemic and offering help to other nations and medical equipment and so on. It's a, There's more than one facet to this narrative. Absolutely. So sitting here in China, and I've been here all the way through this, I, I haven't left, it's been extraordinary. You saw this really remarkable anger on the part of ordinary Chinese who are not particularly political back when this broke out real anger about the idea that this had been covered up, real anger and grief about the death of a whistleblowing Chinese doctor who had been punished by the police for saying that this virus was out there and then he died of it himself. Suddenly the mood is changing very fast into a kind of huddle around the flag nationalist position because the Chinese propaganda machine is pointing to the failures of the American response. You know, they're not testing, they're not ready. It is highlighting Donald Trump's use of things like the Chinese virus to say Donald Trump is a racist and anti-Chinese. And so the message now is this pure nationalist message that China is the grown-up, responsible, organized, one-party system that's saving the world through its sacrifices and a chaotic, weak, decadent, declining, racist America 
is not only failing to look after its own people, but is in a racist way trying to pin the blame on China. And that, I think, if it takes hold, and you can see that starting to gain real traction here in China, one way of putting that, and it's very depressing, is that Xi Jinping, the leader of China, who did have potentially quite a big problem with Chinese public opinion because of his bungling of this crisis at the beginning, is being saved by Donald Trump's domestically focused, somewhat racist vocabulary. There are clearly political and and ideological dimensions to all of this, but what about the public health end of things, to have the world's two largest powers squabbling at this level when, when this kind of pandemic is spreading? It's a catastrophe. I mean, remember that you're going to have competing scientists saying, we may have a vaccine. Does the world trust this? Should we all share it? Should we all test it? There's going to need to be a high degree of cooperation, a high degree of trust and openness and information exchanges between governments. And that is exactly what is not happening right now. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you like the intelligence and want to get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com/radiooffer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. China, the world's most populous country, seems to be on the other side of the infections curve. So far, India, the second most populous, has been reporting only modest numbers of infections and just a few deaths. India moved quickly to, for example, carry out temperature checks on incoming travelers and to equip a network of testing centers. As part of a push to keep the public informed, Prime Minister Narendra Modi will set out further containment efforts in a national address tonight. But some experts fear that the low infection numbers don't really reflect the scale of the outbreak. It's a serious concern the epidemic poses a greater risk to India than almost anywhere else on the planet. There are four stages to an epidemic. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief, based in Delhi. The first stage is when it's just imported. It comes from outside. There are just a few cases that come in from the outside, you know, often from a foreign country. Uh, And those can generally be easily controlled. That's the first stage. Second stage is when there is contact between people coming from outside and a few locals. Again, it's containable, it's a few cases. The third stage is what they call community infection, when it's no longer coming from outside, it's actually spreading between people in the community, but still within a fairly containable range. And then the fourth stage is when it turns into an actual epidemic, when it's beyond control and different, you know, a whole different series of measures have to be taken. And what the, what the authorities in India are insisting on is that India is still in stage two, i.e. It's, it's only the first contacts with people coming from outside. They say that India has not yet moved to stage three, which would be when it's actually trans- being transmitted within the community in India. 
And how do you think it is that, that India managed to, to, to stay at that level? Well, for one thing, India is not in the pattern of travel of the, the first countries that developed the, the virus. I mean, there's not a lot of traffic between India and China, for example. But also, India moved fairly quickly, right back at the end of January, to begin to limit travel into India. So India was fairly fast on its feet in, in kind of trying to contain, limit, and at least test for fever incoming passengers from, from other parts of the world. And India was pretty good on getting messages out about being aware of the disease. Uh, that's really penetrating trade deep across the country. So, you know, India, India was not behind the curve in responding to the crisis, but it was luckily behind the curve slightly in getting the actual first infections uh, to come to India. The national government has limited capacity, and there are more than 30 Indian states, and some of Indian states, in particular Kerala in the far south, actually have some of the most sort of model programs to, to combat viruses. How do you mean? What, what's Kerala doing differently? Well, Kerala, for example, I mean, they put in a massive monitoring program to actually trace and track every single incoming passenger, every every single person who might have been exposed to the disease. And this has been taken to, you know, real extremes of traveling, you know, on back roads up to the most distant villages to find every single contact. In one case, they, they found nearly a thousand people, traced nearly a thousand people uh, that, that might have come into contact with a single carrier of the disease. But they're also very good at sort of general public health. I mean, for one thing, they've, they've installed, for example, places to wash your hands at virtually every little bus stop all over the state, including in, in remote villages. They've also you know, sent out the police force to get people off the beaches, uh, which is a difficult thing to do in a place where people spend an awful lot of time on the beach. I mean, it sounds as if in, in Kerala, anyway, things are very much in order. C- can that be extrapolated to the country as a whole or no? Well, not really. I mean, part of the trouble is that it's difficult to know if the numbers are right or not. India has done not very much testing. I mean, among such a huge population, India has so far done about 11,000 tests. I mean, that compares to, you know, 40,000 or so in the UK, which has a, you know, a fraction, a tiny, a small fraction of India's population. So there's some question about whether the the numbers that India is giving, which is so far less than 200 or so, you know, people infected are correct. And there's, there's quite a lot of anecdotal evidence that those numbers may be wrong, that there may be quite a few more people who are infected already. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, for example, that the number of Indians abroad, uh, by the government's own statistics, who have the virus uh, seems to be almost double the number of Indians in India who have the virus, which is kind of a strange thing. So it's quite possible that we do have an iceberg phenomenon in India. One one expert says he believes there are more like 10,000 people infected rather than the, the, the low hundreds, which is what the government is saying. But even that would be a, a relatively small fraction of the population. Yes, but even according to the official numbers, India, on the scale of sort of where you are in time with this with the virus, if, if the United States is considered to be about 10 days behind Italy, then India is about 10 days behind the United States. So that's the, exactly the kind of number that would now begin to grow exponentially and start to double every you know, four or five days. So we could very soon have really big numbers. That is a possibility. I mean, it's not clear, but that is not, not an impossible scenario. And, and if... India were to head up the the, the, the ladder of, of epidemics as, as described. How would that play out, do you think? Well, this is where we come into quite a problem because this is where India is really not prepared. I mean, India is prepared in terms of, you know, public information and so on and so forth. The, the main problem is the actual capacity in India's medical system, its healthcare system, where there's been under underinvestment for generations, decades. India's government budget for health is less than 3% of GDP. 
it's really very, very low. And the state of public hospitals is abysmal, particularly in the provinces. I mean, in big cities, okay, you know, there's a, there's a kind of infrastructure in general. But when you get outside of big cities into smaller provincial cities, finding enough respirators or beds in hospital is going to be virtually impossible. And so you think shortages in the medical system are, are, the, are the greatest challenge should this outbreak become an epidemic? Yeah, absolutely. But there are other problems, too, because it's compounded by the fact that you know, India's population is not a particularly healthy population uh, compared to you know, wealthier countries. I mean, you know, India is, has the world's largest tuberculosis problem. I mean, respiratory disease is a serious problem in India already. But also... Poverty means that to have a, a regime of isolation, of you know, social distancing and so on, is just not possible for a lot of people. For one thing, a lot of people are too poor to stop working for more than a day or two. They need you know, a daily wage just to feed their families. And a lot of people don't live in a home environment where you can be isolated. You know, they live in crowded environment, often with no ex- access to, for example, running water. So uh, it will be quite difficult to impose that sort of uh, that sort of thing really broadly on India. It, it sounds as if if India were to to expand into epidemic territory, then it would be a particularly bad one. Then, well, that's right. I mean, our fingers are crossed that it won't be, but I mean, there are indications that it could be really very serious. And the government actually is taking action. I mean, you know, it's not resting on its laurels, but the real question is: Does the government have the the capacity ultimately to to, to manage this? That's what's going to be proven in the next few weeks. Max, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That was great. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. In Lagos, Nigeria's largest city, the fastest way to get around is on two wheels. Or at least, it used to be. The government has banned the city's ubiquitous motorbike taxis. When you are standing in Lagos on a typical street, it's literally hordes of Okadas, motorbikes, and Kekes, three-wheel tricycles, or tuk-tuks. Emmanuel Akinwotu writes about West Africa for The Economist and is based in Lagos kind of streaming, cutting, weaving, darting between and around all the cars, around pedestrians, onto the pavement. It's, it's really uh, a sight to behold, but it helps in so many ways. It's not necessarily a loved, but a very like valued form of transport. But recently, that has changed since the ban. So what, what does the ban ban? So since early February, there was a ban by the Lagos state governor on Okadas, and kekes, meaning that they are no longer able to operate. And that's caused quite significant disruption. Well, why do the authorities want to ban them? Okadas especially, for a long time, they've drawn the ire of authorities in Lagos. They are not very easy to love in Lagos. They're very anarchic, very disruptive. They are quite dangerous at times. They essentially flaunt road safety laws. And so authorities have sort of always seen them as being a problem and as a reason why there are several accidents in Lagos. But for ordinary people, especially people working, commuting through Lagos, they are really a godsend. And so what about all the people who have, have been depending on these things? In the week or two after the ban, it was especially bad. You walked around and you could see 
hundreds, uh, in some places, thousands of people walking, connecting in neighborhoods onto the main roads. I had relatives who live in a part of Lagos called Ali Mosho, where there are many kind of bad residential roads where there's poor transport connections other than through Okades and Kekes. And they were forced to walk for 20, 30, 40 minutes before they could then connect to bus routes. A lot of these roads are poorly lit. And for women, especially coming home at night, that was a real big concern. And the government have not really faced those concerns at all. One of the things they've said is um, that they've increased the bus service. They said that they've added 65 buses to the transport network. It works out to be something like one bus for every 300,000 people. In a city like Lagos, 65 buses makes a very, very small difference. So, so it sounds as if the, if the government's plan was to, to serve the people and to increase their safety, then this has been a shambolic failure. Yeah. In the last few years in Lagos, there's been a growth of motorbike taxi firms that have kind of come in, invested heavily in Nigeria, in Lagos particularly, backed by millions of dollars in venture capital. They have drivers who are registered. The drivers have to wear helmets where they are under certain conditions. And then the ban came and it was a kind of sudden shock to a lot of these firms. And people have sort of wondered whether Lagos, a state that really kind of prides itself on attracting foreign investment and is the biggest economic engine in Nigeria, why a state like that is making it difficult for companies coming in to invest in the transport service and make the transport service more diverse and safe. If it's simply a matter of, of congestion and vehicles that can avoid some of the congestion, it, it does suggest that maybe there, there isn't a good solution to, to reduce the, the, the traffic on the streets. What, what, what should have happened, do you think? Yeah, reducing traffic in Lagos has been a challenge that successive governments have tried to grapple with and none of them have really done that well at. There are all sorts of issues, both regulatory, both the way in which Lagos's road network is set up, and the damage to Lagos's roads. And these are issues that you can't fix as swiftly as you can with a ban. In a sense, people want the government to focus on these issues that will take time and effort rather than trying to use a quick fix to solve it. That doesn't actually help. Emmanuel, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.